While sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. That's what uh, we're told. If only it was true. Now, criticism is always tough to take, isn't it? But much harder still to hear uh, that people have been spreading lies about you. Uh, maybe an email gets back to you, uh, a memo or a conversation gets back to you, and you hear that people are out to damage your reputation. People have got false and slanderous accusations to make. Um, threats, misinformation is being spread about. Uh, it's not an uncommon experience, really, for those in leadership. And when your reputation and your integrity are under attack, it can be very hard to cope with. Because the problem is, that the problem is this, that words can harm us. Bones can be mended, but reputations can be destroyed forever. And that's why personal attacks um, can cause so much distress, anxiety, sleepless nights even. Now, how should we respond as Christians in that situation? Well, the answer is we need to find a quiet place. We need to open our Bibles to Psalm 4. We need to meditate on Psalm 4. Pray through Psalm 4. Drink it deeply until we begin to feel God's Spirit transforming our perspectives. So let's take the time to read it. I, I'm actually going to put the words up on the screen here because I'm going to read from the ESV today because I think the way it translates a few things are, are a bit more helpful in the ESV than the NIV. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices. And put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, if you notice, as we read there, this is a psalm that has a journey, doesn't it? It's a psalm that starts with distress and ends with David expressing some delight. It starts with sort of a sense of panic and it ends with a sense of peace. It starts with stress and it ends up with sweet sleep. This has been called by some the evening psalm. Um, from verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So this is a very valuable psalm. I think many of us will have days where at the end of it, we're feeling quite panicked, feeling quite anxious. 
And yet the psalmist who has that experience, he's experiencing distress, yet still knows peace in distress. So I take it that there are a number of things in this psalm that help us get to peace, even when we're facing sort of a time of panic. And that's what I want us to reflect on uh, this morning. The small letters at the, uh, at the top of the psalm uh, are actually in the original Hebrew text to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. And there are a number of times in the, in the life of David which could have prompted the, the writing uh, and the use of this psalm. We don't know exactly when it, when it was. Some like to pair it with Psalm 3, which is given a very specific context. The time when David was fleeing from his life for his life from his own son Absalom, who was out to kill him. So uh, David is not a guy who's just had a lovely life living in the Bahamas, uh, sipping Coca-Cola by a swimming pool. He, he, he has known real times of stress. Uh, very few of us have had to flee for our lives, let alone from our children. Well, David knew that. And even if it's not related to that experience, we can know uh, that David lived in the real world of stress and anxiety. Significant and powerful people were making slanderous and false allegations against him. The word, uh, verse 2, O men, uh, if you have an ESV, you'll see it's, it's, it's footnoted that men of rank, men of power, men of influence are spreading lies. They're trying to trash his reputation. And that is a very significant issue when you're the king. Now, what do you do when you're under attack? Uh, what's your response to heavy and harsh criticism? Fight back? Uh, start digging the dirt? Well, they said that about me, did they? Well, I tell you what, I can tell you a few things about them. Do you start a supporters group? Do you get angry? Do you get even? Well, those are the natural responses, aren't they? Instead of the above, the Christ, King David, turns to God with this psalm. And he begins with this confident prayer of verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. It's a very bold prayer, isn't it? Have you ever started a prayer like that? Answer me. Answer me. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. Do you ever wonder if uh, God will hear and respond to your prayers? Well, David has three uh, grounds for thinking that God will hear his prayer. Firstly, on the basis of God's justice. O God of my righteousness. See, David knows he's innocent of these charges being leveled against him. Uh, with regard to this slander, he is righteous. And he knows that God's a just God. And uh, so he feels emboldened to pray. Hear my prayer. And uh, he addresses the, the, the judge of the whole earth. And he says, God of my righteousness. Instead of running around trying to prove his innocence and integrity to those around him, throwing lawsuits or whatever, or going to the press, he turns to God who knows the truth. He turns to God to vindicate him. And that was the practice not just of Christ David, but of Christ Jesus. We just read that earlier in our service when we read First Peter. What did Jesus do when he had unjust suffering? 
Well, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what Jesus did. And so David appeals on the basis of God's justice. But notice with me that David knows he's not perfectly innocent before God because he also appeals on the basis of God's grace. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. He knows that while he's innocent of this specific charge, um, he's not an innocent man with regard to his whole life. The best of people along with the worst all need for God to relate to them on the basis of grace and mercy. And that in between this appeal to God's justice and God's grace, he reflects on the evidence of God's help in the past. You have given me relief when I was in distress. See, this was not the first place that David was in a tight spot. He'd had tough times in the past. Uh, He'd been stressed and pressurized. And yet God had delivered him. God had put him into an open place. God had uh, freed him up. And I want you to think about this in your own life. Consider the many small and uh, great ways that God has answered your prayers if you're here as a Christian. Uh, I think if we take the time to recall all the times we were in a tight scrape and we called out to God and He answered us, it would draw forth greater faith and trust in the current crisis. Uh, If God's helped you six times in the past, is he going to give up on the seventh? David knew that he wouldn't. God's not going to change his mind about answering our prayers. He's not run out of resources uh, to meet our needs. Uh, God does not have a budget deficit. Um, He has unlimited power and unlimited resources. And so how much more certain can we be as Christians that God will hear and answer our prayers? Uh, if, If we approach God through faith in Jesus, we come actually clothed in all his righteousness. And truly in Christ, we can address God as the God of my righteousness. We come knowing that God sees us clothed in all the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As we trust him, he sees us as perfectly right before him. And we can have every confidence to bring before him our concerns and our cares, knowing that God really uh, loves us, that he's eager to respond to our prayers. And so having this boldness to address God, uh, David then continues on in his prayers. And he starts, as it were, in his prayers to appeal to his enemies. In verses 2 and 3. And what these verses reflect on, really, is the question of where is our source for honor? Where do we look to be honored? Uh, If we're looking that that men and women uh, are the people who are going to really give us a sense of worth and value, that we're looking for them to honor us, then how devastating... Uh, if they are intent on shaming us. And uh, these people in verse 2 are certainly out to trash his honor and reputation. 
How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words or seek after lies? See, if we're, we're people today who, in a sense, our emotional life hinges on how other people view us and how other people speak of us, then truly we will be on a roller coaster through life. If we get our value because the crowd around us says, you're a great person, then that's a very precarious place indeed. Uh, it's the award season again, isn't it? I just love the way people sort of love slapping themselves on the back. They create these award ceremonies. Uh, filmmakers say, well, we'll have award ceremonies for ourselves. You're marvelous. No, you're marvelous. Who's going to be told that they're marvelous this year? Mm. Who's going to be told they're marvelous? Well, what if people turn around and say, well, you're rubbish? You're rubbish. If our value hangs on what others say, then that's a very devastating time. Very hard at school, isn't it? If the in crowd, the cool kids, shun you. And uh, really, that goes through life, doesn't it? (laughs) To be on the outside. You come into the room and your workmates stop talking and start looking a little bit guilty or start laughing. How long will you, shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But you see, David does not look for his honor to come from men. But it comes from the Lord, verse 3. But no, and he's addressing these uh, detractors in his prayers, away, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. See, David, his confidence really stems from this sort of doctrine of election. Verse 3 Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Uh, David knows that God chose him to be the king of Israel. That was God's doing. He was plucked out of obscurity as a shepherd boy and anointed by Samuel to be the king. And as Christians, the knowledge of our uh, being uh, called to be part of the people of God should give us great encouragement and inspire faith. Uh, Keep your finger in Psalm 4 and turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to suggest to you that this is where you should get your sense of self-worth and your value and your significance. And this is where our honor really stems from. Ephesians 1, verse 3. It's on page 1173. 1173. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We're going to have some actors very excited about getting an Oscar. Well, let me tell you, here's the real place to get blessing and uh, honor and recognition. Who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before the creation of the world, we were chosen in Christ. Uh, Verse 5, in love. 
he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. In love, God has chosen to bring us into his family, adopted us as uh, sons and daughters, his heirs, to be part of his family. Now, such a God who can mastermind people, events, and history to his appointed will and gather people to himself knows full well how to protect and love his elect. It's so foolish when people mock uh, those who have put their trust in Jesus, who've submitted to King Jesus. If you look at the bottom of Ephesians 1 verse 10, this is God's plan to put in effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. God's big plan in history is to bring everything under the lordship of Jesus Christ, under King Jesus. My friends, if you've put your faith in King Jesus, um, that should be the thing that gives you your sense of significance. There is true honor that God has set his love upon us and brought us into his family. And so David reflects on this. He says, but no, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And the Lord will hear them when I call to him. We live in a time where people are constantly despising Christ, where his name really is just a swear word. And, and the question, how long will my honor be turned to shame? The answer really is, it will not go on forever. His resurrection from the dead on the, uh, on the third day after his crucifixion, uh, his is the proclamation to the world that he is the king, that he is the judge, that God has appointed. We will not be allowed to despise Christ forever without serious repercussions. And the name of Jesus Christ, which should be honored, is, will be honored on that final day. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? It's a kind of a description of our culture today, really, isn't it? We live in a pleasure-driven, trivial entertainment culture of never-ending TV, music, films, advertising. And people live for vanity, emptiness, amusing themselves to death without any consideration of their estrangement from God, their lost condition. This is the problem of humanity, that it is far off from God, mocking his people and mocking God's king. David reflects on that. He's in a time of distress. And yet he's reflecting on these truths. His honor comes from the Lord and not from other people who are seeking to trash it. And in verses 4 and 5, he appeals to the godly. And here, I think, is the question of where's our source of hope? Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. When we're stressed and distressed, uh, where's our hope? Well, is it in our strength? Is it in our strategies? Is it as we get angry and stirred up about injustice and how we're going to sort? Is it, is it really a hope of how we're going to fix things and sort things out? 
Well, David offers better way to respond. He says, be angry, literally tremble, but don't sin. Being maligned in justice is an unpleasant experience, and, uh, and yet it shouldn't be an excuse for sin. There's great temptation to respond sinfully when under attack. Uh, our times of stress often really reveal the deep things in our heart, don't they? And we need to be diligent to guard our hearts when we're in a tight spot. And that's what David urges here. He says, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Instinctively, we want to start defending ourselves and, uh, and get busy responding with our plans and our strategies. We want to exert power. We want to make a plan. Uh, we want to get back at these detractors. And it so easily turns to sin. And so David says, no, be silent. Ponder in your heart, on your bed. Take time to see things from God's perspective. Take time to consider what's motivating your thoughts and responses. That word sila, um, probably shouldn't have read it really, it's a musical term, it, it, it denotes a kind of a gap in the music, a pause in the music, and the scholars seem to think it would have been a, maybe a, a, a sort of a, a bit where music took over from the words, and it was a time where people thought about what was being said, and so he says, now, in your hearts, uh, on your beds, be silent, and the music kind of goes quiet, gives everyone an opportunity to actually be silent and think about what he's saying. The godly way to respond to injustice is first to zip our mouths and explore our hearts. However sinfully other people are behaving, the godly response is not to return sin with sin, but to commit to being obedient to God's word and put our trust in the Lord. I think that's what verse 5 is saying. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. It is to hope in the Lord and not hope in your own strategies and plans. We often get stressed and anxious because the truth is the world is so much bigger than our little lives can handle. We can't really cope. And it's an opportunity for us to turn to hope in the Lord. Now, in that time, um, being obedient to God's word meant offering right sacrifices, meant the temple worship. Now, we don't have that now. We're in the view of Jesus coming and fulfilling the, the temple sacrifices. Uh, instead of worry and complaint, though, David urges, in a sense, worship. Consider the gospel. He died so that the penalty of our sin could be forgiven. He was raised from the dead. And... Uh, he has given us his spirit that we may have power to, to turn from sin and walk in obedience. And the only hope for rebel sinners is to go to Jesus for forgiveness and come under his lordship. And, and what we need to do when we're angry and we're anxious is we need to stop and remember the gospel. And think before you speak is pretty good advice, I think. But think about the gospel and speak to God before you speak is even better advice. And that's what David is modeling in this psalm. How does he turn from distress to experiencing peace in distress? It's by doing exactly what he commands here. Put your trust in the Lord. How do we do that? Stop. 
ponder our hearts and turn in prayer to God. He, he, he has this confidence to, to pray to God. We've seen his appeal to the ungodly. We've seen his appeal to the godly. And then in the final part of the psalm, in the last three verses, he, his appeal to the Lord. I think the question here is, is where's our source of happiness? Clearly, David is surrounded by many companions in verse 6 who are pretty gloomy. There are many who say, who will show us some good? In a sense, those around David are kind of looking for better circumstances. They're looking for better days. They're, they're doubtful that they'll ever come. Who'll show us any good? But David asks to know more of God in that experience. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Now, David's praying right in the line of God's will here. Turn back to uh, Numbers chapter 6. Keep fingering Psalm 4. And you'll find this on page 141. Page 141. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, verse 24 of chapter 6, 6 verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And so while David's companions are looking around fearfully, David is looking upward to seek the light of God's face and his blessing upon them as a group. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. He's praying right in line with God's word. This is what matters most to him. The world looks everywhere else but to God. But the light of God's face is enough for him. Now what motivates happiness for most people is like the bonus pay, the increased share price, uh, a large wine cellar perhaps, a higher valuation on your house, uh, in circumstances, you know, good health and so forth. But David is urging us to not look for happiness there, but to find our happiness in knowing God. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And look what he says. Verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than when they have their grain and wine abounding. David knows about a joy that's not dependent on his circumstances. Now, by the end of this psalm, what has changed? There he is on his bed, writing this song. What's changed about the day? Not a lot. He's still got people out there trashing his name. He's still got people getting uh, all stewed up about bringing him down. But what's changed is his perspective. What's changed is that as he's prayed these truths of God's word, he's begun to see things differently. He's been able to lift above the anxiety and worry that comes when we look for honor from others instead of the Lord. When we look for hope uh, 
in our own feeble strategies and resources. He, he sees beyond that limitation. He reminds himself of, of a happiness that can come not because of his circumstances, but of privilege in relationship with God. And that's why he has these wonderful fruits of verse 8. Peace and security. Verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. What valuable fruit this is. Do you want fruit like this in your life? Good night's sleep. Being able to have peace in distress. Do you know, if we're trusting Christ, it's on offer for us. We can know this experience. Have you not known this at times? When in real stress and anxiety, you've turned to the Lord, you've poured out your heart, and you've just had this awareness and realization that He is your loving Father and He's right with you in that moment. Have you not known times like that of great joy that the Lord is near? Just to be aware again afresh that actually as you look at the circumstances all look set against you. In fact, there have been many evidences of God's grace even in your distress and just the realization that the sovereign Lord has been touching and affecting your life. It can be a source of wonderful joy. I like our opening song, but I think it's a bit triumphalistic and un, you know, unrealistic. That this is my story, this is my song. Always joyful, always peaceful, always happy, always at rest. Well, I don't know. Fanny Crosby had an experience that was far greater than mine. That's not my life, right? I'm often plagued with stress, anxiety, concerns. And the promise of the gospel is not to kind of give us a Prozac pill of constant joy and happiness where we soar above everything like nothing touches us. That's not the real world, is it? It's not my world anyway. If you're having that world, let me know. I bet you're taking Prozac. Uh, But that's not the world I live in. But what is held out here is the promise that in distress we can really know joy, peace, security as we look away from ourselves as we look away from the assessment of those around us and we look to the Lord. Remember the truths of the gospel. Yes, he has set me apart to be his special people. He has promised to love me and keep me to the end. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not give us everything else? And as we recall these things in our distress... We can commit our problems to the Lord and know the sweet peace of sleep. Do you remember when Jesus, uh, when Jesus told the disciples um, after a long day of teaching about the power of God's word, Mark 4, they pushed off across the sea and there was a terrible storm. It was, uh, they, they were fearing for their lives. What was Jesus doing? He was asleep. He was asleep in the boat. And even more incredible is to read Luke's account of the crucifixion. 
surrounded by scoffing crowds who were despising his claim to be the Christ, the chosen one. Surrounded by mocking soldiers, Jesus prays to his Father on behalf of his enemies, Father, forgive them, for for they know not what they do. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And after bearing God's wrath against our sin in the darkness, Jesus calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. Such was uh, Christ Jesus' trust in his Father that he can lay his life down, even into the sleep of death, knowing that his Father can make him dwell in safety. We read from 1 Peter that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What a wonderful psalm, Psalm 4 is. It's God's inspired word to stressed out people to lay hold of him in prayer and to experience this joy, this peace, and this security. Let's pray, shall we?